Well, good morning. So, so this morning we are continuing our study of Galatians, starting in chapter 4 and verse 21, and continuing through the end of the chapter. And to give you a little background for context's sake, uh, remember what the message of Galatians has been so far, and consistent throughout the entire book. Christ has saved His people by grace alone, through faith alone. And yet there were some Judaizers who came into the Galatian church who were teaching the people that they had to be circumcised in order to be saved. And this was rank legalism. Paul asked the Galatians in chapter 3, verse 3, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? So Paul was saying, in effect, Christ saved you by His efforts, not yours. So then are you now trusting in your own efforts without His help for your sanctification? Now certainly as believers in Jesus Christ, we have a responsibility to live according to the commandments of God. But how many of us can do that on our own? None of us can. In fact, the primary purpose of the law is to show us our need of a Savior. So then, having been reminded of the general theme of Galatians thus far in the epistle, let's read the text for this morning's sermon. So this is from Galatians 4, verses 21 through 31. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you, not, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is our allegorically speaking. For these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman, who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for more are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. Now I'd like to start off saying that while some in our congregation are dispensational, our church is covenantal in its theology that we teach. And I believe that this is the scriptural way to view theology. God works with his people in covenants. But at the same time, he saves his people in the same way throughout the ages. Dispensationalism 
in its extreme form, claims that God saved the Jewish people in one way, and he saves Gentiles in another way. They claim that Jews were, and by extension are, saved because, number one, they are considered God's chosen people, and number two, they keep God's law. C.I. Schofield, a well-known dispensational preacher, says in his study Bible in the note on John 1.17, and I quote here, The point of testing is no longer legal obedience as the condition of salvation, but acceptance or rejection of Christ with good works as a fruit of salvation. So we see one of the leaders of dispensationalism making the claim that at one time, legal obedience was the condition of salvation. Now, dispensationalism was essentially invented in the 1800s by a man named John Nelson Darby, who was promoted heavily by other men, including C.I. Schofield. And some of you may be familiar with the Left Behind book series that was popular about 20 years ago, uh, authored by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. When you hear people talking about the secret rapture of the church, followed by a seven-year tribulation time, and then followed by the second coming of Christ, which under this theology should probably be considered his third coming, but I digress. And then you're then wrapping up with a thousand-year millennial reign of Christ on earth. You're hearing someone promoting and describing dispensationalism. Now, not all dispensationalists accept two views of salvation. Many hold to an orthodox view of salvation, but have embraced dispensational end times theology. And even within their own dispensational ranks, there's a disagreement of when the so-called rapture will happen. There are three camps within dispensationalism, consisting of a pre-trib, a mid-trib, or a post-trib rapture. And all of these views presuppose a rapture of the church apart from Christ's second coming. And though I don't agree with them, I would not consider those who hold this view as outside the realm of orthodoxy. As long as they maintain that salvation is through and has always been through Christ alone. Now, since dispensationalism is such a modern invention, um, not even conceived in the first 1800 years of the church, it should be apparent that this is not what Paul is referring to in the epistle to the Galatians. But rather, Paul is describing two views, two ways of viewing covenant theology. So when we say covenant theology, we're talking about the covenants that God has made with his people throughout the ages. Under the Abrahamic covenant, God's chosen people were generally the people of God through their physical lineage to Abraham. And yet their salvation was always accomplished by the mediatorial work of Christ himself on behalf of his people. And this salvation was applied by their trusting in a Savior who was to come. And they believed that the promises given to them by God uh, in the form of many prophecies. We read this morning from Isaiah and the prophecy of the coming of Christ. And these were the things that they would point to and see as believing on that Savior who was to come. Under God's new covenant, God's chosen people are not from a physical seed, but rather a spiritual seed. Yet their salvation is accomplished in the same manner by trusting in the already finished work of Christ. So I'll briefly mention three predominant views 
of end times doctrine within the camp of those who hold to covenant theology. First off, all of these views reject a secret rapture of the church that is distinct from Christ's second coming. Number one, we have historical premillennialism, which says that Christ's second coming will precede a 1,000-year millennium. Amillennialism, which says that the 1,000-year millennium is not a literal 1,000 years, but is rather metaphorical for a long period of time. And then number three is postmillennialism, which says that Christ's second coming will happen at the end of a 1,000-year millennium. Under this view, things will continue to get better and better as the church enters a golden age before Christ's return. Now, though it's not a requirement for membership at Northwest Bible Church, and neither is it a requirement to serve as an elder at Northwest Bible Church, it is noteworthy that all three of the current elders at Northwest Bible Church hold to covenant theology and are amillennial in their end times view. So I will be teaching from that perspective just to let you know my bias up front, because we all have biases and they, they will come out in your teaching. Now, returning to our text in Galatians chapter 4, I see several points that we can glean from this passage. Number one, this is a discussion of covenant theology, and in particular, two views on covenant theology. Number two, one view of covenant theology is closely tied to the law. And number three, the other view of covenant theology is tied to the promise given and realized through faith. I believe that covenant theology is the biblical way to look at theology. And that's what we see described here in Galatians. The basic premise of this section of Scripture from Galatians 4 is that there are two understandings of covenant theology. These differences are, in context, the same as the conflict described in the rest of Galatians. It's the difference between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. In verse 21, Paul is speaking to those who want to be under the law, not as those who want to follow the law as an act of love toward God and a sincere desire to live according to His Word. Rather, he's addressing those who would wish to gain their justification and salvation by their own keeping of the law. And that is the intended audience here. So then his question makes all the more sense. Do you not listen to the law? Paul is about to explain what he means by this question. Those who want to be justified by their keeping of the law are, of course, very familiar with the Scripture. They will immediately know the story of Abraham and his first two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. In verse 23, we know immediately that Ishmael was the son of the bondwoman, Hagar. He was born according to the flesh. And Isaac was the son of the free woman, Sarah, born through the promise. Now, in this modern age, there's a bad habit among preachers to allegorize the text that they were expounding and to lead their people off on a tangent. Most often, it's in pursuit of a feel-good, you-are-special kind of sermon that scratches itching ears. I'm sure you're all familiar with the example of, of preaching on David and Goliath. I've heard that sermon so many times in the charismatic church, it's ridiculous. And it goes something along the lines of, You are David, and Goliath is that big problem that you're facing. So you just need to have faith and take up your five smooth stones 
representing the fivefold ministry, which is another bad teaching, and, uh, and slay the giant. And some of you may remember Matt Chandler's famous response to this uh, when he said, you're not David. He went on to say that if you have to find yourself in that story, then you are the Israelites who are cowering in the corner while Christ, who is David, slays Goliath, who is Satan. Now I say all that to offer a word of warning about allegorizing a portion of Scripture. But when we come to Galatians 4.24, we are told specifically in God's inerrant word um, that Abraham's two wives and corresponding sons are indeed allegorically speaking. They are two covenants in this case. And when the Scripture calls another passage, passage of Scripture allegory, you could believe that it really is an allegory. But I'll also say that while it's allegorical, it does not mean that these, these events did not happen. Uh, this passage of Scripture that we're talking about this morning is indeed allegorical, but it also describes actual historic events that happened in the Old Testament with Abraham. But the Scriptures were written for our encouragement and instruction as well as for the glory of God. So we keep those things in mind as we read. <clears throat> Not only is the allegory allowed, but the Scripture goes on to explain the allegory. Hagar is the covenant from Mount Sinai. She is a slave. And so are all who attempt to walk out their Christian life according to this covenant of works. This stands in stark contrast to the free covenant from Jerusalem, whom verse 26 says is our mother. Martin Luther said, Therefore the Jerusalem that is above, that is to say the church, is not subject to the law in its obedience, but is free and a mother without the law, sin, and death. That is the sort of mother she is, and that is the sort of children she bears. Now, under the new, I'm sorry, under the old covenant, believers were saved by trusting in the Savior who was to come. But along the way, in adhering to the old covenant, there were also many ceremonial laws that had to be kept. The promises made to Abraham included the physical land of Israel, which was Canaan, as we read about in Genesis 12:7. Physical children were born into this covenant and were given the sign and seal of the covenant in their circumcision. It was possible for someone who was not an Israelite to enter into the Old Covenant, but if they were male, they had to be circumcised, and they were considered proselytes. And They essentially became Jews. They gave up their unclean eating of meats. They adopted the traditions and practices of the Jews, and they left their own culture behind. Under the New Covenant, Believers are saved by trusting in the finished work of Christ that He performed on behalf of His people. Now in this sermon, you may hear me say New Covenant theology. And I just want to stop and point out that I don't want that to be confused with the heterodox docu um, theology taught by uh, N.T. Wright under that same name. Um, and explaining what he means by New Covenant theology is really outside the scope of this message. Uh, but when I say New Covenant theology in this sermon, I simply mean it in contrast to the Old Covenant theology that we see here in, in Galatians 4. The promises made to New Covenant believers are spiritual in nature. Our land is heaven. Children are spiritual children who come into the kingdom through the means of our evangelizing them. 
followed by our discipleship of them. And I would hope that in Christian families, we would start with our own physical children, but there's still a need to evangelize them. They're not born into this new covenant. In the new covenant, believers are from every tongue and tribe and nation. And while Christian believers should still adhere to God's moral law, there are no requirements to totally abandon the culture that one is born into. After all, the new covenant is a spiritual covenant with spiritual membership and blessings. And that's why we'll see many different styles of worship in various parts of the world and in different ages. God has commanded how we are to worship Him. We, we should pray. We should read the Scriptures. We should sing. We should practice the ordinances of baptism in the Lord's table. But the language that the service is conducted in, the meeting location, the dress of the congregation, and other such elements are left to the culture of the believers in that area or time period in which the service is taking place. So you see that there's a night and day difference between these covenants. Our Presbyterian brothers want to claim that the new covenant is simply a new administration of the old covenant. Is there any truth to that? Well, if you're Paedo-Baptist, then you certainly hope so. Because that's the only way to jump the cavern of equating baptism with circumcision and applying it to all infants of believing parents. But what saith the Scripture? I'm going to ask you to turn to a passage that clearly refutes those of the new administration camp. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 31. We're going to read verses 31 through 34. This is the Word of God. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke. Although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. So we see that the new covenant is a spiritual covenant, not a physical one, like the old covenant. It's an entirely new covenant, not simply a new administration of the old. Now, circumcision does have a counterpart in the new covenant, but it's not really baptism. It's the circumcision of the heart. Paul makes this clear in Romans 2, 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is it circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Now obviously the only way to have a circumcision of the heart 
is to have it in a spiritual sense. Your heart is frequently regarded as the center of your spiritual life. Romans 10, 9 through 10 tells us that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. The primary receiver of the gospel is the heart. So when we are truly saved, we are circumcised in our heart and confirmed by the words of our mouth. We are set apart as one of God's chosen people. And this happens when we are born again. As a covenant sign, heart circumcision is a much stronger sign than that of baptism. After all, it is man who baptizes, but it is God who circumcises the heart. Even for paedo-baptists, there's a delay between physical birth and baptism, though it's much shorter uh, than credo-baptist. But the circumcision of the heart happens the instant you're born again. So then there are clear differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Whether you are believing as an ancient Jew under the Old Covenant, or you're believing as a Christian with the view that we are simply living under a new administration of the Old Covenant, in both of these cases you're still bound by the constraint of the Old Covenant. Verse 22 sets the scenario. Abraham had two sons one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. The bondwoman is representative of the law. Let's go through our verses and see how the bondwoman is tied to the Old Covenant in the law. So first, in verse 23, the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. If you remember the story of Abraham, when he had been promised that he would have a son, Abraham grew impatient. Sarah came up with the idea that Abraham should go into Hagar, Sarah's servant, and have a son with her. Now, Abraham thought this was a great idea. (laughs) And he didn't waste any time following Sarah's advice. So in our own impatience, do we abandon waiting on God's promises and strive to help God along by concocting a way to get it done faster? This covenant is from Mount Sinai. If you remember your Bible stories, Mount Sinai is where Moses received the law of God written on two tablets of stone. The law brings bondage because we are unable to keep it on our own. The children of Israel prove this over and over again throughout the Old Testament. Just look in the book of Judges. The common theme there is summarized in the very last verse of the very last chapter of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges 21, 25. The Old Covenant made the people of God to be slaves who bore a heavy load trying to fulfill every jot and tittle of the law. Verse 25 of Galatians 4 says that Hagar is Mount Sinai and Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. So then Galatians is telling us explicitly that the Old Covenant deals with physical Jerusalem. And trying to fulfill the ceremonial law leads directly to slavery. The main point of Galatians is that the Galatian church was abandoning the gospel and trying to be sanctified by the law. This is the ridiculous notion 
that we would prefer slavery over freedom. Verse 26 tells us that the Jerusalem above is free. Verse 28 calls us, who are brothers, children of promise like Isaac. And yet, in this contrast, we see a great conflict ensuing. Verse 29 tells us that he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. Those in legalistic circles who feel they are achieving their own salvation through their own works are greatly disturbed by those who are born according to the Spirit and have freedom in Christ. There's just something unfair in their eyes that they are working so hard to be right with God and those born according to the Spirit simply trust Christ and walk in His ways through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit rather than trying to do it all on their own. So in conclusion, what is the directive we are told to do in this passage? Referencing the Old Testament story of Sarah and Hagar, we are told to cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So brother and sister, that's what I urge you to do today. If there are those of you who are trying to con- if there are those that are trying to convince you that salvation is achieved through your own works, then cast them out as the scripture says. We are children of the free woman the Jerusalem from above. And it's time we started acting like it. There are many godly Christian men throughout history, and even in our modern times, who have taught and continue to teach that baptism is a sign and seal of the covenant, and thus they place this seal on their children when they were infants. I was on Facebook recently when I heard one of these well-meaning individuals um, explaining that they consider their children Christians because they have been baptized. And yet, according to this man, being a Christian doesn't mean that their children are saved. And my jaw dropped when I heard this, so much so that at first I thought the man was joking. Uh, But then I realized that he wasn't joking. And it, it saddened me when I realized that he was serious. The Word of God teaches that when one becomes a Christian, they are justified. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ are actually saved. And an an unsaved Christian is an oxymoron. Praise God that this is true. All those who are hearing my voice today fall into two distinct categories. You're either justified or you're not. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone, then you belong to Him. If you have not, then you belong to Satan. And for those of us who are parents, I would much rather know that God has called us to evangelize our children than to instill in them some false sense of security that they are Christians simply because we, as believing parents, are Christians. It's true that the children of believers enjoy a great blessing being born into a family where they will be taught the gospel from an early age. When someone joins Northwest Bible Church, we ask them to tell their testimony. And I love to hear the testimonies, particularly of the children, who've grown up in this church, when their response is that they were taught the gospel from such an early age, that that's all that they can remember. Some can't put a date on when the Lord saved them. But each and every one understands that there was a moment in time when they placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for their own salvation. None of us are born directly into the new covenant. 
Praise God that when we enter this new covenant, we belong to Christ forever. There is no presumed Christian until proved otherwise under the new covenant. So as we move to this portion of our, of our service, we're going to, going to approach the Lord's table. And as we approach it, let's remember and think back to the time when we first trusted Christ. Often in Christian circles, though I don't find a scripture and verse for this, we are told to remember our baptism. Now that's something that it's impossible to do if you are baptized as an, as an infant. But I ask you this morning to prepare your heart to partake of the Lord's table as a full-fledged member of the new covenant, not just as an administration of an, of an old recycled covenant. This is the Lord's table, not the table of Northwest Bible Church. If you've trusted Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, and you've truly entered into the new covenant, then I invite you to partake of the Lord's Supper with us this morning. If you've never personally placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of whether your parents or your spouse or your siblings have, then I would ask you to let these elements pass you by. 1 Corinthians 11:29-30 tells us, For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. And in this passage, sleep is a euphemism for being dead. That's right, there were those in the Corinthian church who were judged by God for eating and drinking the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, according to verse 27. An unworthy manner certainly includes those who partake of this meal prior to placing their faith in Christ. So if you are an unbeliever, then I urge you to use this time to observe the body of Christ partaking of the symbols of the body of Christ and know that the Lord Jesus not only makes salvation possible for you, but he commands you to repent and to turn to him. And you are a disobedient rebel if you don't. This meal is thoroughly new covenant in its application. This is not simply a new administration of the old covenant. Rather, it's the new covenant just as we have already read about in Jeremiah 31. So if the ushers would come forward, please. While, while they are coming, I'd like for us all to pause for a moment to confess our, our unconfessed sins and to repent and to ask the Lord's forgiveness before we partake of the, the Lord's table here. For partaking in, the, in an unworthy manner can also include believers if we are living in persistent, unconfessed sin. So let's take a few moments and pray. Father, we do come before you this morning. We repent of our sins. Lord, our sins are many. And uh, and we thank you that you have died and shed your blood to cleanse us of these sins. But we do ask for your help, your strength. Pray that you would sanctify us by your word. Be with us this morning as we partake of these elements. We pray that we would come before you with clean hands and a pure heart. 
pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Luke twenty-two twenty-nine records the words of our Lord as He took the bread. Says, and when He had taken some bread and given thanks, He broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is My body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. So as we break the bread this morning, we can hear the sound and it should remind us of the Lord's body being broken for us. Where our Lord told us that this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread. In the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you as the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus calls the cup the new covenant. It's not simply a new administration, but it is the new covenant. So I'd like to remind you, as we pass the wine, that there are wine on the outside edges of each tray and juice in all the middle rows so that you may partake according to your own conviction. So the cup represents Christ's blood that was poured out for us, His people. It is the cup of the new covenant. So as we partake of the cup, let us remember the great sacrifice that was paid on our behalf. So what can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make us whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's take You can pass your cups to the inside row. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time this morning to worship you through the communion of the Lord's table. Pray that you would help us to remember these things and to, to see the, the great sacrifice that was paid for your people. Bless this time this morning, in Jesus' name, amen.